Good morning, everybody. Like my lovely wife, and that is my lovely wife, Shannon said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you, as always, to the South Suburban Vineyard Church, and I want to extend a special welcome to those who might be visiting with us for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. It's always good to have you here, and I also want to say a welcome to those of you who are watching us online, whether you're watching live right now or watching on demand later. We're so happy to have you here with us at the South Suburban Vineyard Church. I have the privilege this morning of continuing a teaching series that we've been in for just, just the second week now, a series that we've simply been calling Jesus, the gift that keeps giving. You probably know this already, that we're in the third, entering the third week of Advent, and Advent is a season observed by millions of Christians all over the world, and it's a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. And I say this every year, but during Advent, we try to maintain at least three postures. One is a posture of gratitude where we thank God for Christ's first coming. The second posture is a posture of preparation where we prepare for Christ's second coming. And a really important third posture is a posture of celebration. It's the most wonderful time of the year not just because you might get some really good gifts, but because you've been given the best gift, and that is that God's presence is here among us today. Amen? Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, says, The Word, Christ, became flesh and moved into our neighborhood as a way of describing how God's presence has come close to us. And so when we talk about God being here with us, we talk about a God who is proximate, a God who is close. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And maybe you didn't know that this is what Christians got excited about because sometimes we tend to highlight the wrong things. But when we celebrate, when we sing rejoice, when we proclaim joy to the world, this is what we're talking about. We're rejoicing because the Savior has come and he is this precious gift, the best gift ever. We saw last week that the best gifts given are practical, meaningful, they meet felt needs, they solve real problems, and they make the recipient of those gifts better off in the long run. And if this doesn't describe perfectly our Emmanuel, God with us, I don't know what does. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 foreshadowed that Messiah, when he came, would bring good news to the poor, Set at liberty those who are captives, heal the sick, bring freedom to the oppressed, and on and on and on and on. And so the, the goal of this series is to highlight some of the ways that Jesus is that gift that just keeps on giving and to prime our hearts to enter and hopefully exit this season with the right perspective and the right posture. And last week we began this series by talking about Jesus as the bringer of salvation, right? Uh, the bringer of salvation, one who is able to take care of once and for all our biggest problem and our deepest need and our biggest problem is our sin problem, right? That thing, that stuff, that attitude that creates this huge cavity between us and God. And we're easy, it's easy for us to misunderstand sin as just these dirty deeds that we do, these bad things that we might do from time to time. But sin is an attitude. It's a posture. It's a way of life that seeks to be the boss rather than letting the boss be the boss, right? Everything that we do, 
every disposition and attitude that we have toward other people and God that is categorized as sin basically amounts to us wanting to be the boss. And when there's sin present in our life, it breaks our relationship with God. And when our relationship with God is fractured, it ultimately breaks our relationship with what? The other humans, right? And so sin is a serious problem. And we talked about how Jesus is the bringer of salvation last week. And I want to continue this series this morning by talking about Jesus the healer. Jesus the healer. You are in one of those churches that believe in healing, right? You are in one of those churches that believes the parts of the Bible that says we can contend for and pursue healing because we are connected to Jesus, the healer. And one of the most beautiful, the most useful, the most durable gifts that comes along with the Savior is our connection to Jesus, the healer. I want to put this diagram up for just a second. I hope you can see that. And hopefully this will help you understand just what's broken with this world and how Jesus has come to fix that. So you see two lines there. That bottom line is labeled this age. This is this present evil age that we're living in, marred by sin and all of the fallout from the fall of mankind, right? And so that second line on the top is the age to come, right? What life is like in heaven? What life is like when God is fully in charge? And so when the prophets talk about Jesus coming, people go, I got so happy because they knew that this king would come and establish this new age here on earth. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of hope would break in to this present evil age and begin to push back against that which is dark, against that which is broken, about that which is not right with the world. And so we currently exist in this present evil age where there's all kinds of racial injustice, poverty, people disregard the sanctity of human life, the preciousness of the unborn, and human sexuality is all thrown into a tizzy. Wars rage in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, and other parts of the world. Terrorists feel comfortable flying planes into buildings. Humans are trafficked and enslaved by others, humans, and all manners of sickness and disease ravage bodies all over the world. Friends, these are the fallouts of our fallenness, our brokenness, this present evil age. But then comes the king, a savior who breaks in to this present evil age. The king shows up and he brings with him his kingdom. The goodness and light and power of the kingdom breaks into this present evil age. And that's that first line you see where Jesus comes. But here's the kind of the interesting part. And Jesus comes to bring his kingdom, but that kingdom won't be fully established until he comes back again for his bride, his church. And we'll live and the world will be like it is in heaven. Sickness will be gone. Death annihilated. Ukraine fixed. Israel and Palestine, that conflict will be over when God comes and makes all things right. But in the meantime, and the in-between time, we live in that white rectangle right there, the already and the not yet. Where God's kingdom has come 
but it's not fully come. And so we live in what some scholars call the tension of the in-between, the already and the not yet. So when we say, God, may your kingdom come, we are saying, Lord, let me partner with you so that I may partner with you to push back the kingdom of darkness, contend that things that are wrong would be made right again, that the sick would be healed, that the oppressed would be set free. And this is what Jesus comes crashing into this present evil age, bringing his kingdom. And a part of what he brings is healing to set right that which is wrong. And this is one of the greatest gifts that Jesus brings. He can heal that which is broken. And so I want to highlight today uh, in a message that I'm simply calling the great physician, uh, Jesus the healer. This aspect of healing, this particular strand of this greatest gift that brings healing, not just to sickness, but healing to that which is not right. I want to look at a passage of scripture this morning in Mark chapter 5. I want to start at verse 21. Would you meet me there in your Bibles today? Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, there are paper Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those today uh, to engage with the scriptures. I'm not all offended if you use your mobile device or your tablet or whatever, so long as you're actually looking at the scriptures with us today. Uh, we'll also be projecting it on the screens. Mark chapter 5, we're talking about the great physician. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for yet another opportunity to come before you and your people to rightly divide your word. Lord, we've come in today with all manners of things pressing on us, all sorts of things competing with you for our attention and affection. And it can be all we can do this morning to just focus on what you have to say to us. And Lord, I pray that you would have these words land properly on each and every heart. No matter who we are, where we've come from, Lord, you know exactly what we need. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit in a powerful way. Put power on these words you've given me to speak, Lord. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 5, I'm going to start at verse 21. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowded around, crowding around him. Verse 25, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. And she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of this terrible condition. 
Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, Who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Now there's more to this story that contains the healing of Jairus' daughter, but uh, my intention is to focus on this woman, this dear woman here, and so I'm assigning the rest of the chapter for homework, and there will be tests next week. Amen? What a good snapshot this is of the ministry of Jesus. What a good snapshot of just a day in the life of Jesus, just sort of going about his Jesus sort of life, healing people, setting things right, ushering in the kingdom, you know, just a normal Wednesday for the greatest gift given to man. And we see this was a normal day for Jesus because Jesus was an influencer, a very popular Christian, right? And these crowds are pressing in on him, just wanting to get a glimpse. They maybe heard something. They know somebody that's been touched by him, and the word is spreading. If there was social media in the first century and there wasn't, the word would have gotten around, and wherever people learned that Jesus would be, a large crowd would be there. This is a day in the life of Jesus. It perfectly highlights Jesus, the healer, the great physician. But I want to zero in this morning on this woman's story, this woman's encounter with Jesus, because I think it perfectly highlights for us the best aspects of the makings of a miracle the best aspects of what it takes to receive and respond to divine healing from the great physician. At least four things stand out in this text, and I want to jog through them very quickly. The first thing I see is that there was a need. There was a need. Last week we talked about, uh, in Zacchaeus' story, how Zacchaeus moved toward Jesus because he was curious He was interested, as many people do during the holiday season. Some of you are here today because around the holiday season, there's something in the water that makes you more interested in faith, more interested in church, more interested in community life, more interested in the spiritual life. And so you move toward Jesus because you're curious, because you're interested. We see even in this story, many press toward Jesus for that very reason. They were curious. They were interested. But Mark tells us that there were at least a few folks who moved toward Jesus on this particular day because they had not just simple curiosity, not because they just wanted a selfie with Jesus, but because they had a need. Verse 22 says, a leader of the synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her. Now, we're not focusing on Jairus today, but Jesus encountered this woman's need on the way to dealing with another need. Verse 25, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Jesus is responding to 
a need. And some of you have come in today, not just because you're curious, but you got a need. Something ain't right in your life. There's some aspect of your life, either with your families, or something in your body, or something with your significant other, or something with your children, or your grandchildren, or your, or your stepchildren that ain't quite right. Something in your life that you just can't get it going, and you've come today with a need. Whether you have high expectations that that need will be met today, or no expectations whatsoever, something pulled you toward Jesus and Christian community today because you have a need. Some of us have big needs, right? Immediate needs that need some immediate attention, and both Jairus and this nameless woman have those kinds of needs. And what we know is that when there is a big need, there is also desperation. The second thing I see in this text, there is, might I add, great desperation. And how many of you know that desperation is a different kind of neediness? It's a different kind of neediness. I remember as a boy, we'd be driving along in our station wagon. Y'all remember those? That rear-facing back seat, just an awkward seat where the youngest kids with no agency got stuck in the back. And we would regularly say to my mom, Mom, we're hungry. And we typically got hungry when we're about to pass a McDonald's. They said, Mama, we're hungry. We're so hungry. And we would arrive in pain, let out some strategic moans to let us, know, let us know we were serious. We're hungry, Mama. Can we get something from McDonald's? Now, my mother, as you probably guess, is a black mother. And so she, did, she answered that question with a question. Can anybody guess what she asked us? You got some McDonald's money. You got some McDonald's, the most dismissive question to ever be asked. Do you have some McDonald's money? She knows the answer. We don't have any money. But we're really hungry, Mom. And she would say something like, we got bologna at the house. I said, Mom, we don't like bologna. And then she would say to us, then you're not hungry. Yeah, hungry. Because what she knew is that a hungry person is not that picky. A hungry person is not that picky. She said, you want something to eat. You're not hungry. Because when you're hungry, you're less picky. And when you're desperate, you'll go to extremes. When you're desperate, you you will do stuff that you wouldn't, come on, normally do. When you're desperate, you become, in a way, uh, shameless, uncouth, artless. And you throw out convention because what? You're desperate. It's a horrible thing to be desperate. You're vulnerable when you're desperate. You could very easily fall into the wrong hands when you're desperate. And this dear woman, we learn in verse 25, 
has a need, a big one, and she's desperate. Mark says a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She finds herself in quite a bind. Her issues are multi-layered and complex. Let me tick them off for you just a moment. She has first this profound medical issue. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Somebody, that's a long time to bleed. This is a delicate, <laughs> intimate matter as she's been bleeding from her uterus for, for 12 long years. Her monthly cycle started one day and it didn't stop for 12 years. Now this would be a challenging issue in modern times with all the modern feminine hygiene products, but in the first century, this would be a logistical nightmare for a woman of any age. Mark tells us also that she also suffered a great deal from many doctors. And I think this is a curious way to frame this. And I tried to search to figure out exactly what this means. She suffered a great deal from many doctors. Minimally, she went to a bunch of doctors and none of them could help her. Minimally, that's what Mark means here. Maybe the worst case scenario is that she had got a hold of some slick doctors who didn't know what they were doing and even in knowing that they couldn't help her, continued to treat her because they saw her desperation and thought this was a means to feather their nest, to enrich themselves on a woman with a desperate case. We don't know, the scripture is silent, but she got worse and not better. Can we press in deeper? There's an economic side to this because medical care isn't free. It's quite costly, especially if you have a rare ongoing condition, even the more if you've gotten a hold of some slick doctors that wants to take your money and not make you well. She is in great economic distress. There's another layer. There's a social side to this. When you're bleeding in this way for an extended period of time, it might put a damper on your social life. It might hinder and hamper your social standing with others. With an illness like this, it would totally wreck your social life. On top of this, this is a Jewish woman living in a Jewish custom, uh, 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 a Jewish context, and as such, she'd be subject to the Jewish laws and customs, and bleeding in this way would make her ceremonially unclean. And those who might come in contact with her might also become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so people would strategically avoid her for that reason. Which means she likely did not enjoy the company and the normal touches of family and friends. You see where I'm going with this, right? And finally, there's a, there's a spiritual side to this. Because she's a Jewish woman because she would have been considered ceremonially unclean, she could not worship in the normal ways that she and her people would worship. And no doubt this made things complicated, not just in her body, but in her soul. This was a mess, <laughs> naturally. A mess 
economically, a mess socially, and because our souls are so important, it was a mess spiritually. Her situation is great, her need is great, her desperation is real. And maybe you don't have an issue of blood this morning, but maybe you can relate to having a great need, to being in a desperate situation. Maybe you haven't told anybody or haven't told many people, but you're sitting here and you know, and heaven knows that your situation is desperate. What do you do? Well, this woman is a great case study because she does what any smart person would do. She moves toward Jesus in her desperation, in her need, in her desperation and destitution. She moves toward Jesus. Can I just say as an aside, this is why you don't knock folks when they show up to church. No matter who they are or where they come from or what they've been doing yesterday, you don't know what they're carrying. You don't know why they decided to come to church. They might be carrying something that only the master can fix. So either be kind and show them where they can sit down or you go and get somewhere and sit down. Because some folk are just desperate. She moves toward Jesus. Verse 27 says, she had heard about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. She hatches this plan and interestingly it works but she moves toward Jesus. Now we get to the point of the story, the point in the message where we get to see how the great physician responds. What makes him not just a physician or the physician, but a great physician, how does Jesus respond? What do we see next? The third thing I see in this story is that there was compassion. There was compassion. Now, this is significant because not every doctor, not every physician has a good bedside manner. Not every physician, not every healer is a compassionate one. And it's kind of a shame because you're showing up at the doctor sometimes at your lowest point. You're showing up at a doctor and the doctors are kind of one percenters and that only a few people can do what they do, and it is a shame on top of a shame if the physician you go to isn't warm and welcoming and compassionate and friendly. And some of y'all know what I'm talking about because you went to the doctor this week. And some of the doctors don't even come all the way in the door. What's, what's, what's going on in here? What's the name? I mean, and you can tell by their body language that they are already on to the next patient. Has anybody experienced this? Don't look up from the clipboard. A doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. <laughs> and you're afraid and intimidated. You don't get to answer your questions or follow-up questions, right? Because not every physician 
is compassionate. And I've come to pay close attention to how I respond, how I respond in the face of need and other people's desperation. I've come to pay close attention to how others respond in the face of need and desperation because there are fewer things in life that are more telling about who you are and I'm glad the young folks are in here today and there are fewer things that are more important that are more telling about who you are and who you are becoming than how you respond when there's a need in front of you the fewer things more important that can tell you more about yourself and who you're becoming than how you respond when a desperate situation is in front of you. Because it's not just important that you are willing to help, but how you help, how you offer the help really matters. We're talking about the great physician. Are you present and attentive? Does that person's humanity matter to you? Does their dignity matter to you? And some of us haven't been discipled well in this regard. That's why I'm glad you're here today, because Jesus shines where there's a need. Jesus is at his very best when there is a desperate situation. That's why, not, that's why he's not just a physician, he's the what? He's, he's a great physician, because he's compassionate. Years ago, a brother used to come to this church, a uh, big old Nigerian brother. His name was Lote Okofor. We called him Big Low. And if you saw Big Low, you would understand why we called him Big Low. He's a big dude. And I met Big Low when I was a student at the University of Illinois. He was a pre-med student. I was studying communications. And so we moved here and planted this church. And I was going into the dry cleaners one day, and I ran into Big Low and found out that he was a medical student here in the Chicagoland area. So we went to lunch, and he's telling me all about you know, his experience in medical school. Fascinating stories. And he started to tell me about how he's doing these little clumps, I don't know if you call them rotations or whatever, where they let, allow doctors to spend chunks of time maybe in pediatrics or spend chunks of time maybe in orthopedics or oncology or maybe the ER, just so they could figure out eventually what they would specialize in. And Lowe was telling me about how he was being taught to suppress his natural responses to some of the extreme sights, sounds, and smells that one might encounter when they're engaging modern medicine. He said, Gino, you would walk into a room where a person had been burned, their full body is burned, it's a distressing scene, and you would have to walk in there like you were walking into a Starbucks. The person, self-conscious, knowing that they look grotesque, dealing with this maybe for the first time, and you would just have to walk in and say, hey, Miss Goldberg, how you doing today? He said, you go into a room where the patient had recently soiled themselves and the room smells like a zoo, but you'd have to go in like it smelled like a botanical garden. Mr. Jones, how we doing today? Everything all right? I'm sorry, I, I saw it myself again. It's, it happens. And I was struck by how they were being taught as healers, as physicians, to deal with people compassionately, 
to suppress their natural responses to the sights, the sounds, and the spells. What a skill to develop. And the best doctors do this so naturally, right? Why? Because when the doctor comes into the room, she brings with her, at least she's supposed to bring with her, a calming presence. A quiet confidence that inspires hope and optimism. Minimally, a presence that quiets anxiety and dispels panic. I don't know about you, but when the doctor walks into my room, I don't want them to go, oh. We've never seen this before, ever. What I want them to say is, it's all right. We got a cream for that. I've had 10 of those today. You're going to be all right. Compassion. And ultimately, the, face, the patient feels what? Human. They feel seen. They feel dignified and not merely defined by their present issue. Jesus sees their personhood. And as the desperate move toward Jesus, Jesus moves toward them with compassion. With compassion. And he shows this after the fourth thing we see in this text is there's a miraculous healing. And so this is an interesting situation here because typically Jesus encounters the person, interacts with them before the healing happens, but this woman had an unconventional plan. She got the healing, and Jesus is sort of working with her afterwards, still with that beautiful bedside manner, still with all that compassion and dignity. But we see there was a miraculous healing that happened. She touches him. Verse 29 says, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of this terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked a really interesting question, who touched my robe? Who touched my robe? Now this is interesting, right? She's instantly healed and she knows it. She's felt out of sorts for a dozen years. She knows what sickness feels like. So when I think, how do you know you're well? She's like, she knows that it's different. She's whole, she's healed. She knows that there's been an immediate shift. Her plan has worked. But apparently Jesus is who he says he is. She's taken this huge risk, and now she's got what she's come for, and she's happy to fade into the crowd and disappear but Jesus wants to talk to her. Jesus wants to interview her. Jesus is curious. The scripture says that he knows that healing power has left his body. I think the old, test, the, 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 the old King James said that virtue left him when this woman touched him. And he has a question, who touched my robe? Now, if I'm imagining how Jesus said this, he didn't say it in a huff. He didn't say it with disgust. He said it curiously, warmly, with compassion. She wants to stay hidden, but he won't allow it. Now the disciples, they're a little perplexed, a little annoyed with Jesus. This whole crowd is pressing in around you, verse 31. How can you ask who touched me? But Jesus tunes them out, and he asks again, who touched me? 
Finally, we see in verse 33, the frightened woman trembling at the realization that she'd been found out of what had happened to her came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she'd done. She told him what she'd done. A part of me thinks that maybe a compassionate response to this woman is to let her maintain her dignity, let her just go and live her life. But Jesus is always up to something more than we can see. He's God, we're not. He's the great physician, we're not. He, she told him what happened. Now keep in mind, the crowds are pressing in around them. They have no privacy. And she feels compelled to fill Jesus in on her story. Now, I don't want to take liberties with the text, so I don't know how much or how little, but in my mind, she went for it. She told Jesus about the 12 awkward, messy years where a period came one day and it just didn't stop for 12 years. And maybe she told him about the shame and humiliation from the other girls or from maybe her siblings or people who lived where she lived. Maybe she went into details about the doctor bills in the moment she discovered that she was being taken advantage of by those who were supposed to be the healers. Maybe she told him about that. Maybe she told him about being unable to worship in the conventional way and how her soul and faith might have drifted as a result of being cut off from the community. Maybe she described to him being unable to love her and hug her loved ones and be hugged by them. Maybe she told him about the laundry and the sights and the smells. Maybe she talked to him about the dirty looks from other people, the whispers, the indignity of it all. And she tells him certainly that she hatches this risky plan in her desperation to come and steal a touch from the healer and slink back into the crowd. And Lord, here I am with you telling all my business to all the people listening and what is Jesus' response to her? Verse 34, this is my favorite part of the whole passage. And he said to her, daughter. We know Jairus' name. We don't know her name. But I like daughter better. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Jesus doesn't let her stay anonymous. She's nervous, uncollected. But he needed her to have this encounter with, with him because he needed to be able to call her her daughter. Wrapped up in the compassion package is like knowing her, seeing her, and having her experience not just the healing of the, the Savior, but the compassion of the Savior, the care of a good physician. Because it's never about the healing. It's never about the healing. Look at all the stories of miraculous healing. It's never just about the healing. The healing is great. 
The healing fixes problems and lets you be able to live a normal life, but the healing, the physical healing can't do nothing for your soul. And what Jesus is saying with the physical manifestation of healing is what I did for your body, I want to do for your whole life. When I opened your eyes, blind man, I wanted to open the eyes of your heart so that you can really see me. When I healed your legs, lame man, yes, celebrate, leap for the healing, but what I want to do for your legs, I want to do for your life. And if we just let this be a transactional thing where I come and I touch Jesus, he gives me a healing and I sleek off into the distance, I don't, I'm not different, I'm not transformed. I haven't experienced what's truly great about the great physician. I don't get a chance to know that the king has come, broken into our present darkness, and the king has come and brought his kingdom with it. And his kingdom is able to set right that which is wrong, to fix that which is broken. What God wants to do for your whole life is heal it, is make it whole, especially if you got a need that's making you desperate. He needed to interact with her. And not only did he need to interact with her, he needed the crowd to witness it. Worship team, you can make your way up as I land the plane. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite commentary writers, writes this. Her witness, or her telling her story there publicly in front of Jesus, was a rebuke to the multitude. You can be part of the crowd and never get any blessing from just being near Jesus. He continues, it's one thing to press him to be interested, and it's another thing to touch him by faith. We may not have strong faith, but we do have a strong Savior, and he responds to even a touch of the hem of his garment. If we want to be honest about it, it was a silly plan, right? Where's she seen that happen before? Silly. Juvenile even. But it worked. And all of these different instances we have where Jesus is healing, they're all kind of different. They're all kind of quirky. And what I think the Bible, the gospel is trying to illustrate is it don't matter how you get to Jesus, just get to him. I'm going to say that again for the live stream. It don't matter how you get to Jesus. Just get to him. Your soul's in distress. You're a mess. Climb a tree. Get to him. You've got a desperate situation, a need, a messy situation. Press to the crowd. Get to him. You ain't been to church in 30 years. It don't matter. Get to him. You got a problem that nobody else can fix. Get to him. And who knows? You might just get healed. You say, I've been praying for that thing for 10 years. I've had this condition for 10 Get to him. You might. Now, I always have this tension when I'm teaching and preaching on healing because, as I said earlier, we live in the already and not yet. 
And maybe for every 100 people I pray for, maybe two or three of them, four or five on a good year might experience healing. And so there's a tension I have when I talk about healing because I don't want to get your hopes up, but I kind of do want to get your hopes up because he's the healer. And his kingdom is here. And our job isn't to heal people, but our job is to contend for healing and tell people about healing and invite them toward the great physician. You got a need today? You got a desperate situation? Something in your life not quite right? There's an area of your life that you can't, can't get it going. Come to the great physician because he sees you. He knows you. And the healing in his hands is one of the best gifts that we've ever been given. It's that gift that keeps on giving. Would you stand with me if you can? Lord, you see the needs in the room? You see our desperation? You see those things that are broken about us? Even the things that we might have broken ourselves? Man, your posture toward us is come to the healer. Come. So, Lord, would you release a gift of faith in the room? Particularly for those who have wrestled and struggled with long-term issues. Long-term struggles. whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, whether it's economic, you know our name. You are near us. You are here. And so we worship you. Come Holy Spirit, meet us in this moment. In Jesus' name.